It's a program of Jewish information, inspiration, motivation, and transformation. Here on the Gabrielle Sanders Show. Welcome again to another edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. In today's lineup, Rabbi Troy Levitansky gives us a short but insightful look into this coming week's Torah portion. Then Dr. Lisa Aiken concludes her four-part series on interpersonal communication. Rabbi Mordechai Becher shares a moving story of a righteous Gentile who rescued hundreds of Jewish children from the Warsaw Ghetto. Not a well-known story. And then from the archives, we're showcasing the wisdom of Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, Shalom, author of over 70 books. He'll be sharing thoughts drawn from the Ramchal's path of the just. So, I'm glad to have you along with me today, so let's get underway. You're tuned to The Gabrielle Sanders Show, broadcasting on WNEW 102.7 FM HD3 New York and around the world on TalklineNetwork.com. This is David Eskenazi from the Aliyah Network. If you're thinking Aliyah, I invite you to join our dynamic and supportive WhatsApp group. Contact Gabriel for details. Send an email to gabrielradio at gmail.com. Known for his keen and contemporary insights on our ancient Torah, here's Rabbi Sroy Levitansky, National Director for Community Development at BMG Yeshiva in Lakewood, New Jersey. Rabbi Levitansky. This week's Torah portion by Yaakel seems to be, to a great degree, a review for a lot of what we learned in the last two weeks, or really three weeks, Torah portions of Truman Tetzave. The discussion in this week and next week's Torah portion by Yaakel and Pekude is of the creation, the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Now we know there was a mini temple, if you will, the tabernacle that was built by the Jewish people in the desert. It was a place where they could come to and have a relationship with Hashem, with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with the Almighty. A place where they can sense in a very deep, deep, deep sense, the spirituality that existed there. And the idea and the purpose was obviously to connect with their own spirituality and grow as individuals themselves. This week's Torah portion, though, begins in a very, very interesting way. Torah tells us, you take a look right in the beginning in chapter 35, Moshe gathered together the entire congregation of the Jewish people. And he said to them, I've got an important message to you, for you. These are the words, Asher Tziva Hashem, that Hashem has commanded La'asas Here's an important message from the Almighty. Now, many times we don't find in the Torah when, Hashem, when Moshe shares an idea from Hashem, it doesn't say he shared with the entirety of the Jewish people. He might have shared it with Aaron first and then, but over here the Torah stresses he shared it with the entirety of the Jewish people. Sheishes Yamim, six days, Te'asem Alacha, you shall do work. Uvayom Hashvi on the seventh day, Yilachem Kodesh, you shall be for you holy, Shabbos, Shabboson la Hashem, a Shabbos for Hashem. So Moshe is teaching us again, one more time, wasn't enough to hear in the Ten Commandments, the law of Shabbos. And Rashi comments, why is this law so important here as a preface for the creation, the building of the Mishkan? And Rashi explains, you know why? To let us know that the building of the Mishkan does not supersede Shabbos. Now, we know there are many activities we can't do on Shabbos, but I would have thought, I could have thought, building of the Mishkan, building of the mini temple, well, that's a very Shabbos-like thing to do. Hashem is letting us know even the greatest creation in the world we can't do on Shabbos. But why? If Shabbos is to remind me about God, well, building the Mishkan 
building this mini temple would definitely remind me about God, remind me about Hashem. And the reason is as follows. The purpose of Shabbos is to take a step back of creative from a creative activity. We don't create on Shabbos. It's not about exerting energy. It's about taking a step back from creative activity. Why? Because the Almighty is the ultimate creator. That's the message. And that's the lesson of Shabbos. Hashem is the ultimate creator. Not me. Yeah, I've got a lot to do during the week. Hashem asked me to partner with Him in tikkun olam and making the world a better place. But sometimes when you're working really hard and you're trying a lot of things, you forget the most important thing, and that is Hashem. And therefore Hashem said, one day a week, stop. Get back to yourself. Come back to me and focus on the purpose of everything. You know, even in religion, we can get so busy with the details, we can forget about Hashem. We can get so busy doing so many wonderful things that we're doing. We can be doing a lot of kind and great things out there. We can even be working for building a shawl. We can be building a kola. We can be building a school. There are a variety of wonderful, wonderful activities that we can be involved with. But you know, even when we're involved in those things, we can't lose focus of the most important thing of all. And that is of Hashem. Hashem is the central focal point of our lives. He's our sustainer. He gave us life. And the ultimate in life is really to recognize that. When we recognize that, when we live with that, when we live with that, we achieve success. So Shabbos, the holiest day of the week. Mishkan, the holiest building we can create. Hashem, take a step back. Don't get too involved in the technical building of the Mishkan that you'll forget the ultimate purpose of the Mishkan, to find the spirituality that exists there. And that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to find the spirituality that exists within you. But you can only do that effectively when you connect to Hashem, when you connect to your Creator. When you understand His greatness and how much He believes in you and placed within you, then you've got the keys for successful Jewish living. When it comes to Shabbos, let's take a step back to think just for a minute, just for two minutes, just for a little while, about the message of Shabbos, about our connection to Hashem, about the spirituality that exists within us, about what we're doing with our lives. Let's connect it back to that source of all life, Hashem. When we do that, we'll have so much more meaning in all the things that we do. I wish you a wonderful Shabbos and a great week. And here once again is psychologist, author, and lecturer, Dr. Lisa Aiken, bringing us her final segment in the series we've been following called Taming the Tongue. Last week, we talked about destructive versus constructive criticism, and we'll focus on speaking well of yourself as well as others. Here is Dr. Lisa Aiken. Our Torah gives us such wonderful advice about how to deal with interpersonal conflicts. First, it tells us that we can avoid many conflicts by taking responsibility for our interpretation of events and to make sure that we always judge others favorably until we hear their side of the story. When situations come up in which we are upset, it's important for us never to attack another person in anger, and always to carefully censor our words before we respond. If we feel the need to criticize someone because we would like a situation to be different, the sages tell us that we should first make sure that we tell the person a compliment, give us a sandwich of a criticism in the middle, and then give a compliment at the end. Along the lines of how to give constructive criticism, we're given some other ideas. For example, criticism should be brief and never attack a person. It should never dredge up past history or digress to extraneous matters. We should address the present, identify a specific behavior, 
and say how we want it to be modified. We should try as much as possible to limit our criticism to at most three or four sentences so that it doesn't feel like a lecture or an attack. Another aspect of criticism is that we should never criticize what someone can't change, and we shouldn't blame. Crying over spilled milk or blaming someone when nothing can be done about it is a waste of time and energy and is very destructive to relationships. Focus on the situation at hand and figure out how to make it better. Another aspect of criticism is that it should build someone's self esteem rather than humiliate them. Humiliating people may silence them, but it won't convince them to do what you want in the long run. For example, if you're trying to convince someone to lose weight, don't tell him or her that you find them unattractive and that they'll soon need their own zip code. Instead, say something positive to motivate them, like, I think that you're gorgeous now, but you'll be an absolute knockout if you lose another 15 pounds. This brings us to the idea of how we should criticize by stating what we want in positive, not in negative terms. For example, we should emphasize what we like and want rather than what we don't like. We could say to a spouse, Your other outfits are so much more flattering than the one you wore yesterday. Would you wear the other ones instead? A poor criticism would be, I can't believe that you like wearing such ugly clothes. I hope that you never wear them again. We need to be realistic about what people are willing to change. We often need to choose our battles and not criticize too much at once. I once went to a psychology conference where researchers had followed around parents for an entire day when they were with their young children. The researchers were shocked to find out that the average parent gave 1,500 orders to their children in the course of a day. Get up, get out of bed, go wash your hands, stop hitting your sister, come downstairs, eat your breakfast. We get the picture. The same thing often happens with the criticisms that we give to people. We don't realize with our family how often we slip into a mode of criticizing instead of giving positive reinforcement to the people around us. The more reasonable a criticism is, and the less we criticize, the more likely someone is to accommodate us. We should never try to overhaul anyone's personality. Instead, we can offer constructive criticism about something that we'd like changed every few weeks. Someone may be willing to change three or four behaviors every month or two, but not in two days. Asking for too much or criticizing too much undermines others' feelings of adequacy and causes resentment. The more we identify what we do, think, or own as being our true self, the more threatened we feel if someone tries to change it or take it away. Most people are willing to modify a few behaviors and even to accept a few criticisms in a day, but we're not willing to give up on what we think is our most important identity. There's a beautiful story about the importance of how we use our words. Not just vis a vis others, but vis a vis ourselves. There was a very special man named the Chafetz Chaim, who was a very pious Jewish rabbi. The Bible teaches us not to trivialize how information can affect us. God gave Adam and Eve one commandment to observe, which was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. When they ingested knowledge that they were not equipped to handle constructively, it affected them terribly. The Chafetz Chaim tells us that we're not allowed to speak negatively about others. But we're also not allowed to speak negatively about ourselves to others. The way we speak about ourselves to others will affect how they see us. For example, sometimes a husband will say something derogatory about himself to a wife, not realizing that it diminishes her view of him. If there's no reason that it has to be said, such comments are best kept to oneself. Once, when the Chafetz Chaim was traveling on a train in Europe, He sat next to a Jew who was going to visit the saintly Chafetz Chaim. The simple man described the famous rabbi in superlatives. I know him well, the Chafetz Chaim said humbly, and he's not the saint that you think he is. 
The man was outraged. How dare you put him down? Everyone knows what a pious scholar he is. The Chafetz Chaim continued his self-effacement. Don't be fooled by appearances. You don't know what he's like deep down. This dialogue continued for several minutes, with the man getting angrier and angrier. Finally, he was so incensed by the stranger's insults to the Chafetz Chaim, he hauled off and hit him. When they arrived at the train station in Raden, the man asked, Where is the Chafetz Chaim? Only to discover that it was the man that he had hit in the face not that long before. The man came over to the Chafetz Chaim and profusely offered his apologies, to which the Chafetz Chaim responded, I used to know that it was very important for us not to speak ill of one another or to one another about another person. Now you've taught me the importance of not speaking ill of ourselves to others as well. Our thanks to Dr. Lisa Aiken for this insightful series on Taming the Tongue. Dr. Aiken has authored nine books on vital Jewish themes. In the area of relationships, you might find her guide to the romantically perplexed very useful. Married or not, younger, older, man, woman, this is a refreshingly honest and practical look at making relationships really work. This is Rabbi Pesach Kron, and you're listening to my dear friend and yours, Gavriel. As a senior lecturer for Gateway Seminars, Rabbi Mordechai Becher is well known for his ability to relate stories that make a lasting impression. Here's one that happened long ago, but definitely should not be forgotten. Rabbi Becher. I just read this morning in the Jerusalem Post of the uh, death of Irina Sendler, who is a Polish social worker who, at tremendous risk to herself, organized the rescue of about 2,500 Jewish children from the Nazis. She was a uh, social worker in the Warsaw Welfare Department during the Second World War, and she and her team of 20 used to go to the Warsaw Ghetto under the pretext of uh, doing uh, inspections of sanitary conditions and uh, to avoid typhoid outbreaks, etc. And she and her assistants were able to smuggle out And this is unbelievable to me that 2,500 children, not only did she smuggle them out and give them homes amongst Catholics in Poland, but she also wrote down their real names on slips of paper so that she'd be able to return these children, reunite them with their families or with the Jewish community after the war. In fact, just before she was arrested in 1943, she managed to bury the names in a jar under an apple tree in someone's yard, and uh, indeed she had recorded 2,500 names. That is absolutely incredible to me. Uh, What's amazing to me is two things. I guess the incredible self-sacrifice, the incredible risk she put herself to, to save people who were strangers. Uh, I think we probably should look at this and ask ourselves if we'd be in the same situation, would we be prepared to put ourselves and our lives at risk to save total strangers from death? It's not clear, you know, uh, people look into themselves and you've got to think, would I do the same thing? Granted, in an extreme situation, people do incredible things, but even so, we cannot minimize the incredible fact that uh, here was a Catholic woman in Poland not a country known for its uh, love of Jews, that's to put it lightly, in the middle of the uh, Nazi reign in Warsaw, in tremendous risk. And she had 20 people who were volunteers who were helping her to do this. And it was not out of missionary zeal. It was uh, She wanted to, ch- to reunite the children with Judaism, with their families after the war. That's an incredible, incredible thing. I think we have to, on the day of her passing, at least we should think about that and have gratitude to her and to... Uh, to be inspired by her. I think also it shows the incredible power of the human being and the incredible humanity and the power of the soul 
which in the depths of the soul, the human being has incredible power and uh, the soul is pure. I'm reminded of a story I heard from an Australian man who's an elderly man who's a lawyer. And he was actually, he's quite old, he was a lawyer in Germany before the Second World War. And he worked for the government as a prosecutor, criminal prosecutor. He was a young man at that time, probably in his early 20s. And in the concentration camps, as you might be aware, some of the um, people in charge internally, the SS usually stayed outside the actual area where the inmates were, and inside was patrolled by a combination of um, German... They, they used criminals who were released from prison to patrol and control the Jews inside some of the camps. So this is a lawyer, and he was uh, suffering terribly from some stomach disorder, and he left his uh, bunk house uh, at a time that was after the curfew. And strictly speaking, the, the, um, the guards could kill him if they saw him. And uh, he, is, uh, he was sneaking out, and he is stopped by a guard. And it turns out that the actual guard that stopped him was a former a German criminal that he, as a state prosecutor, had helped to put in prison. So as you can imagine, aside from the, aside from the fact that he was uh, an anti-Semite and a Nazi, and aside from the fact that uh, he was a person with complete power of life and death over this Jew in the camp, in it, and he was a criminal, in addition to all that, he was a criminal that this lawyer had actually helped to put in prison. So when he saw him, he thought that you know, his life is probably over at this point. And the criminal looked at him and he said, tell me, give me one reason why I shouldn't just kill you right now. And the lawyer said to him, and I don't know if I'm getting the German correct, so uh, please forgive me for that, but he said to him, for a mensch du bist, which means, he said, because after everything, you are still a human being. And this German criminal turned away and let him live. And the man survived the war and he became a lawyer in Melbourne, Australia, which is where I met him. So what did he say to this guy? He said, because after everything, you're still a human being. Even though he was a criminal, even though he was a he was a guard in the camp, when this man, when this Jewish man said to him, "You are a human," it sparked something within him, and he let this man live. The Mishnah says in Ethics of the Fathers, "Chaviv Adam Shenivra B'Tselim." Humans are dear to God because they were created in the image of God. What does it mean, the image of God? Well, there's a lot of different explanations of that, but certainly it doesn't have visual connotations. In Hebrew, the word demut is from the word dimyon, which means similarity. And as the uh, Maimonides explains in Guide for the Perplexed, it means that we are similar to God in certain aspects. One of the similarities we have is that we have free will. We have the ability to make a free choice, not forced by anything, not affected by anything outside of ourselves. And that free will, that free choice, is the essence of what it means to be human. So when he said to him, because in the end you are human, that actually inspired that person to exercise his free will and to make that choice as a human being to not do the wrong thing. And the same human component of Irina Sandler inspired her to go against the flow and go against the tide in the entire country. A lot of people in the country were actively involved in killing Jews. Even in the Polish resistance, there was anti-Semitism. Nevertheless, she went against all that. Because as a human being, there is this incredible, infinite potential to go against the flow, against conditioning, against society, and uh, to, make the, uh, to make the right choices. And that is what she did. 
that's what I was uh, thinking about this morning as I'm recording this piece, to be inspired by her incredible example of uh, altruistic heroism. She didn't expect, and the truth is, didn't really get much of a reward for it in this world, but I'm sure now, uh, age 98, when she passed away, she's being rewarded for it. And also, the idea of the uh, capacity of human free will, and as a human being, that we all have that, uh, that capacity, which uh, hopefully we should use. This is Dr. Tversky, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about a book, a sefer, which I consider one of the most influential sefarim, one of the most influential books that have been written the past several hundred years. The book is entitled Misilat Yesharim, or The Path of the Just. It was written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, and he's often referred to by the mnemonics of his name, Ramchal. Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato was born in 1707, and he died just short of his 40th birthday in 1747. And there is some significance to that, because Ramchal was a person, a great person, who unfortunately suffered a great deal of unjust persecution. He was a great Torah scholar, and he was also very well versed in Kabbalah, in the esoteric portions of the Torah. He gathered about him a number of brilliant students who venerated and virtually worshipped him. In fact, they thought so much of him that they spread the word that he was so pious and so saintly that he was visited by angels and by the spirits of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who transmitted special knowledge to him. Now, this caused a problem. Because not too long before that, perhaps a generation before that, there was the terrible debacle of the false Messiah, Shabbatai Tzvi, who claimed that he was the Messiah, and he misled thousands and thousands of Jews who believed in him. Ultimately, he converted to Islam. And yet, even after that, there were his devotees who believed in him. Now, when Ramchal had this little group of people who studied Kabbalah with him, and he was very charismatic. And they spread the word about him that he has angels and spirits of the patriarchs visiting him. Some of the rabbis of the time were very concerned that here is another young man who is going to repeat the same disaster that Shabbat Hatzvi did. And they begged him to cease and desist from teaching Kabbalah. Ramchal did not heed that, and he continued his teachings. And some people made false accusations about him, that he was into black magic, that he was into Satanism. And in spite of the rabbis who supported him, he had to leave Italy, where he lived, and went to Amsterdam, where he remained for several years, and where he wrote this momentous book, Path of the Just. Ultimately, the rabbis gave him conditions that he is not to expound upon Kabbalah until he reaches the age of 40, and even then only if he is in Eretz Israel in the land of Israel. He came to Israel when he was 39, and unfortunately, three months before his 40th birthday, he died. Now, he was a prolific writer and has written on many, many subjects. Misilat Yesharim is a book of ethics, and essentially launched the movement of Musar, which was then continued by Rabbi Israel of Salant, the father of the Musar movement. 
Ramchal begins his introduction by saying that he's not going to tell you anything new. Everything that I'm going to tell you here, you already know. The problem is that some things that people know they take for granted, and they do not take the time to examine the facts that they know. They do not take the time to examine their teachings. Therefore, he says, some people have some very strange idea about what constitutes piety. He said there are scholars who spend their time in very worthy Torah subjects, but do not devote their time to thinking and elaborating upon the ethics of everyday life and how a person should behave. On the other hand, there are some unlearned people who did not have the opportunity to learn, and they don't have the faintest idea about what ethics and piety is all about. So therefore, he says, I've written this book for everyone. But he says, because I'm not telling you anything new and I'm simply going to elaborate and explain upon things that are well known, there's no purpose in reading this book once. You have to read it and reread it and reread it. And the reason for that is because of a psychological fact. Ethical behavior, truly moral ethical behavior, can stand in the way of many personal drives and desires. And when that happens... We have a psychological mechanism in our mind called denial. Now, denial does not mean lying. Denial means that the unconscious mind defends us against what we would rather not know by making us oblivious to it. And therefore, he says, many of the demands of ethics are overlooked because of the defense mechanism of denial. And one of the ways to overcome this is simply by attrition. Bring it again to a person's attention, again and again and again, until you wear away the denial. The title that he chose, Misilat Yesharim, has a significance based on a verse in Ecclesiastes in Kohelet, where King Solomon says that God created a person Yashar. The translation of just is not accurate. Yashar means straight, without complications, simple. However, Solomon says, even though man was created yashar, simple and straight, man has complicated things with too many calculations. And here, I believe he is referring to the psychological mechanisms of rationalization, of projection, in addition to denial, many ways in which we are driven to think that what we want is good and what we want is right. The Torah says that a judge who accepts a bias cannot possibly judge objectively and fairly. And we must realize that we are all biased by our personal desires and wishes. And therefore, when we try to judge whether an action or particular behavior is right or wrong, good or bad, we are being bribed by our own desires to come to the conclusion that what we want to do is good and right, and though we may go ahead and do it. And so Ramchal says, Mesilat Yesharim, this is a path for the Yashal, for the person to be able to maintain a state of purity and simplicity and not be deviated by personal desires. Because he referred to the book as Misilat Yesharim, a path of the just, 
I took the liberty of writing a commentary on this book and called it Lights Along the Way. The Mesila is the way, the path, and I tried to gather sources, ethical sources, to be able to shed a bit more light on the path and the way which Ramchal recommends. That's it for today's program. Join us next week for another edition of the Gabrielle Sanders Show. Comments or suggestions, write me at gabrielleradio at gmail.com.